that did before the original South Wales. Uh, we'll have the first slide, please, Ricky. I think there's a picture of you there. On, we, uh, we lived uh, on a mountainside, and at the very top of that mountain, you could look over across the Welsh countryside uh, uh, and see that village called Triorki, famous for its male voice choir. Uh, when I went to Bible College, which was that's why we moved to Wales, I studied at a college in South Wales. Uh, on the day of my interview, we went up to this mountain, I think just to pray, uh, looking over, and got chatting to a guy next to me, um, discovered we were both believers, and his next question to me was, have a guess. No? What's our subject? Are you spirit-filled? That's right. Did that come up before you said it? No. Yeah, good, good, good. Are you spirit-filled? What do you do with that? What do you do with that? Is that a theologically sound question? So I want to look at with you today. Is that a theologically sound question? What is spirit-filled? Boy, I'm freezing. Is anybody else cold? I think I need a jumper. Uh, I think I'm going to start moving a lot, okay? You're cold too, aren't you? It's freezing, isn't it? Uh, if I start moving around more, it's because I'm freezing. Okay, so look, so what is being spirit-filled? Well, I want to look at that with you over the next few weeks. Uh, we, we, we're breaking off from our expository series when we're working through books of the Bible, and we're instead we're going to do some topical, all on this topic about the spirit. Our subject is the marks of a spirit-filled church okay that's all we're going to look at at least over four sermons the marks of a spirit filled church now hey we're going to do something now which i've never done before i'm going to tell you all the subheadings for the next four weeks uh, but you still have to come okay you still have to come but i want to show you the direction just so that we know where this is going, okay? Just in case you're getting nervous. Here's where it's going. We're saying the marks of a spirit-filled church are, number one, next slide please, being supernaturally empowered to be in love with and taken up with Jesus. Number one mark of being spirit-filled. Being supernaturally empowered to be in love with and taken up with Jesus. Number two, Second mark, oh, we can same slide, please. Uh, the second mark of being filled with the Spirit, being supernaturally engaged with and passionate about the Bible. If you're not passionate about this, you're not spirit filled. Okay. Number three, being supernaturally empowered to preach, communicate Jesus to our world. No one can speak about Jesus without being spirit filled. Number four. Next slide, please. Being supernaturally endowed with gifts to edify or build up the church. We need special ability to serve each other. Number five, being supernaturally empowered to produce the fruit of holiness. If you are, if I am not living a life of holiness, I am not spirit-filled. And that's got some huge ramifications, I'm going to tell you in a minute. Number six, being supernaturally empowered to be committed to and participating in church. If I have to bug you to come to church, you may not be spirit-filled. 
they're all based on scripture. We're going to look at them over the next four weeks. Next one, please. Being supernaturally empowered to sing Bible-centered praise songs unto Jesus. Ephesians 5. And the last one, being supernaturally enabled to reflect beauty through order, structure, and the honing of our gifts. Being filled with the Spirit does not look like chaos on Sunday morning. That's not being filled with the Spirit. That's something just weird. Okay, So that's where we're going over the next four sermons. We'll try and take two at a time over the next four sermons. So that's the trajectory. But I want to start, I just ignore all that for now. I'll give you that as you, as you come. I want to ask this basic question. What, what is, what do we mean by being filled with the Spirit? We're going to, Spirit. We're going to look at the marks of what that is like in a church and in individuals. But what is that thing itself? What is being filled with the Spirit? Someone have a guess. And I won't embarrass you in the sermon. Someone have a guess. What is being filled with the Spirit? You think I'm going to jump on you later, don't you? Let's carry on. I'll give you the answer. I'll give you the answer as we look at it together, okay? War is being filled with the Spirit. So let me look at it with you. And what I want to do, I want to take you through Acts and be as fair with the text as I possibly can. There's no preset agenda here. This is an exploration of what the Bible says. If we want to know what being filled with the Spirit is, you have to ask the Bible. Don't ask Tony. Do we have any Tonys here? Don't ask Tony. Who the heck is Tony? Okay? We have to ask the Bible. And let's ask the Bible together. So here's the first thing I think we notice, and here's a, here's a heading. Being spirit-filled is quintessential to conversion and faith. Being spirit-filled is quintessential to conversion of faith. Let me take you to John 3. We've looked at this before. Jesus is talking here, and he tells Nicodemus, who thinks he sees the kingdom of God, who thinks he's converted, he tells him, Nicodemus, unless he's born of water and the Spirit. Verse 6, because the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. The point Jesus is making to Nicodemus is that being born again is having the Spirit, is being filled with the Spirit, and without that experience, you cannot see spiritual realities. You are dead in your sins. Jesus is clear that unless we've had a Spirit-filling experience, you're not a believer, because it's what triggers faith. In 1 Corinthians 12, a similar thing is said there. For we were all baptized by one Spirit into one body, we were given one spirit to drink. A very similar thing that Paul is telling the Corinthian church, that every believer has had a baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's how you became a Christian. It's something that occurred to you. It's what theologians call regeneration. Have you come across that term? It's the moment where you do not believe in Jesus. But suddenly, whether in a sermon or through reading the Bible or some other means, you wake up. You believe it. You get excited about Jesus. He becomes real. You love him. That's regeneration. And that happens exclusively through being baptized in the Spirit. When the Spirit enters your body, your soul, if you like, quickens you, wakens you, unites you to Christ, gives you new life, gives you faith, 
makes you a believer. That page is blank. The sermon has just got shorter. I think. No, I've got page three there. Phew. Okay, so it's the moment of faith. And one more text, 1 Corinthians 12, 3. Therefore, no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit. So the first point that we're making this morning, reading the New Testament, is that a converted person by default is Spirit-filled. You cannot be a Christian and not spirit-filled. So if I were to ask for a show of hands and ask, do you love Jesus? And I guess every one of you here would, then I can categorically state, based on what the Bible teaches, that you are spirit-filled. Next time somebody asks you, are you spirit-filled? Your answer is, yeah, I just told you I'm a believer. Don't you listen? Because a believer, by default, is spirit-filled. That's the first thing. Okay. There's more. There's more. There's more. The second thing I want to say, I want to let the Bible say to us, is being spirit-filled is a further post-conversion experience. Did you hear that? Okay. Being spirit-filled is a further post-conversion, beyond conversion experience. Let me show you what I mean. You see, being spirit-filled of conversion is only the beginning of a journey according to the New Testament. So let me show you. Here's what the Bible says in Acts 1-4. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples just after, uh, after his resurrection. And he says these words to them in verse 5. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. When did Jesus say that to his disciples? Pre or post-conversion? Post. It is. It's post-conversion. He's just about to be ascended. The ascension is just about to take place. He's speaking to his disciples, the 12 minus Judas, and he says to these already converted people, in fact, that already received one installment of the Spirit immediately after his resurrection when he blew on them. This is beyond that, and he wants them to wait for this experience, a post-conversion experience. I want to talk more about that later. Let me take you to Acts 2. We've got the 3,000 who converted. I want you to notice the manner of the conversion, that to repent and be baptized, every one of you. Do we baptize people who haven't been converted? No. So they're now converted people, repent and be baptized. And notice subsequently, subsequent to their conversion, and you will... Is it there? And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So a post-conversion experience. In Acts 9, we had Acts 8, rather, we had the Samaritans. All hear the word, get the apostles sent to them, and through the laying on of their hands, verse 17, they receive the Holy Spirit. Post-conversion experience. Acts 9, when the apostle Paul is converted, through that encounter with Jesus, he has a post-conversion experience of receiving the Spirit. In Acts 10, when Cornelius' household hear the Bible and we soon be converted, they have a post-conversion filling of the Spirit. Acts 19, the Ephesus crew only know about John's baptism. Um, uh, they get prayed for as a consequence of that. They're, they have a post-conversion experience. 
Another short thing of the sermon. I don't know what's gone wrong today. Okay, one of these times I'm going to throw away an actual piece of my notes, aren't I? Okay, uh, so here's the thing. The least we can say, so this is a journey. You've got to um, call a big journey with me this morning. We're on a journey. Don't go before the end of the sermon, whatever you do. Okay, this is a journey. Okay, so the least we can now say is that there is an experience of the Spirit that takes place post-conversion, subsequent to the spiritual experience of regeneration. Let me just gobble the Let me start again. What we're trying to say is that there is, at least for some, a post-conversion experience of being filled with the Spirit that's in addition to conversion and the filling of the Spirit that takes place there. We have to say that, at least from these experiences, we haven't finished yet, but there is for some at least a post-conversion experience of the Spirit. So, let's move on. The next thing I want to ask is, did all conversions in Acts or the New Testament have a post-conversion experience of the Spirit? Have a guess. So we're saying that it's at least for some a post-conversion experience of the Spirit. But the next thing we want to ask on our journey is, did all, were all conversions in the New Testament entailed by this post-conversion experience of the Spirit? Have a guess. Yacht? Yacht? No, 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 that's not. That's right. So the next thing I want to say is, not all New Testament conversions look like Acts 2, Acts 8, Acts 10, Acts 19. Because there are many more chapters. How many chapters in Acts are there? 28, okay? And there's a lot of chapters in the New Testament. I want to show you, first of all, the Ethiopian eunuch, Acts 8, 8.39. When they came out of the water, he's just been converted. He's just got baptized, okay? And then Philip got taken away by the Spirit, and we're told that the eunuch went on his way rejoicing. There is no mention of a post-conversion filling of the Spirit for the eunuch. Either Luke was asleep, or he just didn't have such an experience. Acts 13, the conversion of the Roman pro proconsul in Cyprus. There's no mention of a post-conversion filling of the Spirit in his conversion whatsoever. Acts 13, the Poseidon Antioch, crowd of people, all come to faith. No mention, no mention of a post-conversion filling of the Spirit. Acts 14, Acts 16, 14, Acts 16, 34, Acts 17, 34, all conversion stories, none of them mention a post-conversion filling of the Spirit. What do we now have to conclude? We're on a journey. The first conclusion was that everyone receives the Spirit of salvation. The next conclusion was some have a post-Christian uh, experience of the Spirit. What's the third conclusion? Not everyone has a post-conversion experience of the Spirit. You have to say that. Or you have to throw away half of the New Testament. So everyone has a pre-conversion experience of the Spirit. Some people have a post-conversion conversion experience of the Spirit. Some people don't. In fact, the majority of the cases in the New Testament are without that precedent. So we're left in a bit of a limbo. What do we now do with this phenomenon? Is it then, is it then just a thing of the past? 
Okay, Jerry says no, but we're on a journey. You've got to wait till you get to the end, but that's a good start. Thanks, Jerry. So is it just a thing of the past? What do we look? It's 2019. What do we do with this in 2019? We have experiences in the Bible that some Christians have and experiences in the Bible that some Christians don't have. What do we do with it? Let me take you back to the Bible. Let me take you back to the Bible. Acts 2, uh, verse 17. This is Peter's sermon. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see dreams and visions. visions. Your old men will see dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I'll pour out my spirit in those days. Now, what do you do with that on the journey? This has been one of the longest sermons I've ever taken to prepare. The longest I've ever taken to prepare a sermon. It's taken me three weeks. Okay. What do you do with that? What does that do to our... It does. That's what I'm saying. So what do you do with it? Because it does look like that, Morag. Morag is right. It seems to be suggesting everybody's going to get this experience. Let me show you how to read the Bible. You have to ask yourself... Who was it written to? Because there's one reality. I learned this the very first day I went to my first Dick Lucas proclamation uh, conference in London, uh, proclamation trust conference, and Dick Lucas is an internationally well-known uh, writer, pastor, and theologian. And he said, he looks right at me, Montez, and he goes to the group, and he goes, when the, he goes, take us a book of the Bible, and he said, who was it written to? And then he says, it wasn't written to you, silly. And it wasn't, Jeff. That book wasn't written to you. You weren't even in existence. Luke didn't write for you, Jerry, and he didn't write for you, Rob. So the first thing we had to understand, the Bible wasn't written to us. It was written to people at the time. Who was 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy written to? Timothy. Who was 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians written to? The Corinthians. Who was Philippians written to? And Acts was written generally as a history of the church. It wasn't written to you. So the first thing we have to do, we have to put ourselves to the people it was first written to, to get a grasp of what it means. And Acts was written to the early church, to a Jewish congregation. If you were a Jew, let me ask you, what do you know about receiving the Spirit? You're a Jew. You're a Jew. Right now. Okay, I've made you one. I pronounce you a Jew. What do you know in your history about receiving the Spirit? Who gets him? Who gets him? Only a select number of people. Let me give you a couple. The spirit was reserved for a very special purposes. Uh, next one, please. 1 Samuel 10, the spirit of the Lord came upon you in power. He's talking about Saul. Just been pronounced king. The spirit comes on him. David, next. Just been pronounced by Saul Samuel to replace uh, Saul. The Spirit comes on him. And a few others. When you read the Old Testament, for Jewish people, you knew if you were a Jew, the Spirit was out of bounds for you. You're not getting him. It was only the privilege of very, very special people for very, very special purposes. And so when we now read as a Jew, remember it wasn't written to you, silly, it was written to the Jews. When you now read as a Jew and you read these words in the last days, God says, I will pour out my Spirit on all people. God is saying to us, look, I no longer select special dignitaries to share my spirit with. I now share him with whoever. From the most commoner to the most 
the highest standing person in our community. So I think the most Acts 2 is saying is that it's now generally available. It's not saying it's the experience of everyone. It's misreading the text out of context. What it's saying is it's generally available. Whether you're a commoner, whether you are a special person, the Spirit of God is available to the worldwide church post-conversion. That's the next thing we want to say. But there's more. I want to look at more with you. So let's keep exploring together. So it's generally available, but is it for every single Christian? That's what I want to ask. It's generally available for whoever you are, but is it for every single Christian in the church in 2019? And we already have one taker. Any other takers? Going, going, two. Okay, any others? Any others? Okay, any others? So we've got two people at least. How much money you got? Okay, okay. So is it for every person on the planet? Well, before we look at that, I want to look at some other things first. Firstly, let me take it to Acts 4.8. Peter is there, who's already had a filling of the Spirit. And what do we see happens to him in Acts 4.8? He's already had a filling of the Spirit in Acts chapter 2. What happens to him in 4.8? What happens to him in 4.8? He gets it again. Okay, it's not so clear in English, but he gets it again. Let me just take you to Acts 4.31, a bit clearer there. These guys, some of whom would have been the 122, they've all been filled with the Spirit. What's happening to them in Acts 4.31? Next slide, please. Oh, have I not got it? There. What happens to them? They get it again. Acts 13.9. Paul's already filled with the Spirit. Post-conversion in Acts 9. What happens to him in Acts 13.9? It seems to be a refilling of the Spirit. So here's where we are. Acts 2 seems to suggest that the experience of being filled with the Spirit, post-conversion, is generally available to the people of God, whereas previously it was exclusively available. Okay? But is it for the whole church? It's available more than once, according to Acts. Generally available to people of any standing, available more than once. But is it available? Is it the expectation? Should it be the experience of every single believer post-conversion? So, and, and, and in answering... You have to have a text. You see, I really don't care what Tony believes. I really don't care what Tony believes. We have to have a text. Is there a text of the Bible that suggests that ongoing fillings of the Spirit are the normative for every Christian of every age? Without one, you can't say yes. So if you want to say yes, is there a text? Because up to now, we don't have a definitive text. None of the texts have shown up to now are definitive to make this a universal, worldwide church. There has to be at least one Bible verse that suggests there is. Is there one? Yes, there is. Where is it? Where is it? 
It's to do with singing. It's in the context of singing. It's in Ephesians 5. Listen to this. Do not get drunk on wine. Have beer instead. No, no, do not get drunk full stop. Okay? Which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. And boy, that is a loaded verse of the Bible. It's the only one here. That's prescriptive. See, part of the trouble with reading Acts, it's narrative. The thing about narrative is you're just reading what's taking place. It's not necessarily telling you to do something. When we read the narrative of David sleeping with Bathsheba, is that telling you to sleep with your neighbor? It's not, is it? See, you can't read narrative so strongly as prescriptive text. And this is a prescriptive text. It's telling you something. It's telling who something. The, at least the Ephesus church, we know these letters are written to all the church. This is now general, normative. What is he telling the Ephesus church? Keep being filled. It's an ongoing, continual, endless, life without end experience post conversion. Here's what a commentator says. Let me read this to you. The imperative makes it clear that this is a command for all Christians. The great present, the Greek present tense used here rules out any once-for-all reception of the Spirit, but points to a continuous replenishment. And this is a sound uh, commentary that I'm reading to you here. Okay, it speaks of a continual replenishment. So to be fair to Scripture, friends, we have to conclude from Ephesians 5 that a post-conversion reception of the Spirit is an ongoing normative experience for Christians. The Holy Spirit, who is the agent of our salvation, whom we receive the salvation... Is, who is the third person of the Trinity, is to be received as an ongoing perpetual reality for the rest of a Christian's existence. Do you see that? Somebody wants to say something. Because, oh, we got, we got four sermons looking at what it does for us. That's what those four sermons do, Jim. They're going to look at the benefits of it. So unfortunately, you're going to have to wait. But for now, I want to at least state the fact that a Christian should, according to Paul to Ephesus, in a prescriptive text to the general church, have ongoing perpetual experience of the Spirit regularly, maybe daily, maybe moment by moment. You know, I never step into the pulpit without first seeking a filling of the Spirit. How dare I? How dare I imagine that I can perform spiritual tasks in human strength? And so, and I think Ephesians 5, friends, puts across strongly to us, whatever else we can get from the narratives of Acts, Ephesians 5 is a definitive verse that tells Christians that they're to go on perpetually. I think the idea is almost is not just have a second experience. I do not believe in a second experience. That's not biblical. I believe in an ongoing experience. And so I think the idea is not that I, I get converted and then someone prays for me, you know, lays hands on me and have this baptism of the Spirit. I don't think that's the idea. I think the idea is I get converted and I get plugged into the power supply and I live a life when I'm continually being filled with the Spirit, that there may be a moment when that feels especially nice. 
I mean, there may not be. But the key point being is that I have to be continually within this source, availing ourselves of it. And I think the, the fact that it's an injunction be filled seems to be suggesting this tap isn't just left on on, that this tap has some participation with, that I think we have to expect, participate in this regular filling of the Spirit. So the third thing we're saying, friends, the fourth thing rather, is that every Christian should be having ongoing experiences or fillings of the Spirit. The last thing I want to look at with you uh, before I close this session, we've got four more sermons, remember, before I close, is how do I know it's happened to me? I know when conversion has happened to me because I didn't believe, now I believe. How do I know that I have had a filling of the Spirit post-conversion? How, do I, how can I be certain? Is there a sign? Something definitive? Yeah, but, but that, that you're leading on to my sermon now for, for the next four weeks. I don't, don't, leave my sermon alone, you. Okay, I want to know now, is there one definitive universal sign that, that we all know we've had a second encounter with the Spirit? Yes, I've heard some stuff there. No. No, yes. You guys have a fight afterwards, okay? Uh, I won't tell you who my money's on. But let me quote somebody. Here's somebody that thinks. There's a, there's a book, a Pentecostal book called The Holy Spirit and You by Dennis and Rita Bennett. And here's their point. That speaking in tongues, listen to this, comes with the package. Speaking in tongues is not the baptism of the Holy Spirit, but it is what happens per se, world without end, when and as you're baptized in the Spirit. It's the quintessential Pentecostal position. That the mark of the second or the ongoing experience of the Spirit is speaking in tongues. What do you do with that? First of all, I don't care what Tony says. I've already, already told you that. Tony is a stinker as far as I'm concerned. The only thing I'm concerned about is what the Bible says. So what does the Bible say? Is tongues the quintessential mark that I've had or I'm having this ongoing filling of the Spirit? Hmm. Let me, let me look. Let's look at what the word is. So the Greek word for tongues is glossa. Okay, it just means it means that thing there. Okay, it means tongues. And it's but the, the thing with that word is used exactly the way we use it. We use tongues as that thing there. And how else do we use the word tongues? Languages. And the Greek does exactly the same. So nothing to learn from the Greek there, except that it's, it's, it's the instrument that, that speaks. But nevertheless, it's, it's used in all different ways. So let me give you a, bit, a clue about how to handle the Bible here. Is word study is not enough. Just because you know what a word means, means nothing. Look, look, if I say I'm cool, what do I mean? Remember what I said earlier. What do I mean? But you don't know. No, no, I'm just saying I'm really trendy. I would have thought that's obvious. Look at this shirt. That's the trouble with words. You can't just interpret what a word means in the New Testament and say, oh, I know what that verse means because people use words differently. The same author uses the same word differently. The same preacher had used the word cool differently in one sermon. 
The only way you know what a word means in the Bible is not by what the word means, but by the context of the word. Okay, and so the context of tongues is of languages in the New Testament in these places. But here's the thing about tongues. There's at least three different types in Acts. In Acts 2, what type of tongues is that? Who could understand it? People. The Acts 2 tongues were languages that humans could understand. They were definitive and clear languages these people understood. The thing about the Acts 14, early verses, tongues, no one understands it. So tongues were an entirely different type. And then the tongues of Acts 14, latter part of the chapter, is the tongues that some can interpret. So there are at least three different types of tongues. One that people understand, one that only God understands, and one that uh, interpreters understand. So you're already asking yourself if tongues is the sign of, uh, the sec- uh, of subsequent experiences, which tongues is it? So the first thing I want to say is that tongues is a diverse experience anyway. But the next thing I want to say, yes, in Acts 2, in Acts 10, and in Acts 19, tongues are spoken when people receive the Spirit as a subsequent experience. But the next thing I have to ask is, is that normative? Is that regular. Does every person in the New Testament who has a second experience of the Spirit speak in tongues? Because if you want to say yes, that it is tongues, you've got to have a normative experience. You have to have it general, and it's not. You're right, it's not. Let me show you. So the disciples did. Let Let me take it one step further back. I want to show you that not only is tongues not normative, the Acts is full of non-normative events. Acts is full of one-time or two or three-time events, which means you cannot take any event and make a universal doctrine out of it. Acts 1 verse 4, Jesus tells them to stay in Jerusalem and wait for the Spirit, right? Who here, who may or may not believe in ongoing experiences of the Spirit, has ever been to Jerusalem to receive it? Who's here gone to Jerusalem to receive the ongoing experience of the Spirit? Nope. Anybody? No. So the first thing we have to say in Acts is that there are events that don't get repeated. In Acts 2, the 120 received the Spirit. Okay? Post-conversion. Sorry, the 103,000. How many of them speak in tongues? No. So Luke forgot. No. No, 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 no. This is a doctor. If he forgot, I'd never go and see him again. Okay? No, no, no. It didn't happen. The 3,000 converted, there's no tongues. Okay, what about, I've got some more here. What about Acts 4? Peter, uh, we looked at it earlier, Peter is again filled with the Spirit. Does he speak in tongues in that situation? No, he doesn't. He doesn't. Acts 4.31, a large group of people are refilled with the Spirit. Do they speak in tongues again? No, they don't. Acts 9.17, Paul is filled with the Spirit for the first time. Does he speak in tongues? No, he doesn't. And he goes on and on and on and on. And what you find, friends, is that the ongoing experiences of the Spirit, for the majority of cases, do not include speaking in tongues. So what do you do with it? So you have three, you have Acts 2, you have Acts 10, possibly Acts 8, but Acts 10 and Acts 19. Three, possibly four. But no other experience of the Spirit includes tongues. What does that tell you about tongue speaking and the definitive mark of an ongoing experience of the Spirit? 
It's not, it can't be, can it? You see, if it was such a definitive sign, the 3,000 should have done it, and Luke should have wrote it. Luke's a stinker of a doctor, and he's a stinker of a historian, and he told me in Luke 1 that he's an historian who's carefully investigated all of the facts. Remember he wrote that in Luke 1? So did he forget? And why did he forget several times? No, that would be a terrible thing to say about Luke. Luke didn't include it because it didn't happen. Luke didn't include it. So speaking in tongues is not a definitive, universal, normative mark of having ongoing experiences of the Spirit. The definitive, ongoing marks are what we're going to look at next time. They're the ones that have to be present. Now, let me say Tongues may be present, and they were for in Acts 2, 10, and 19, and maybe 8. But let me tell you something. I'm going to close now because my time's up. But let me tell you something about Acts 2, 8, possibly 10, and 19, and why I think there's tongues there and tongues nowhere else. Anyone have a guess? Does, anybody, does anyone guess why they spoke in tongues and it happened nowhere else? Yeah, but the others had the gifts too. Any reason why for those situations? Yeah, Morag, you're, you're, you're on the track there. You really are. You're sniffing at the right track. Here's what's going on. Look. Yeah, pardon? Yes, yeah, that was, that was only in Acts 2 when they spoke other languages for people, but not in Acts 8, 10, or 19. Here's what I think is going on there. Very, very quickly, my time's up. Is in Acts 2, the Spirit is given for the first time. It had to be Jerusalem. It could, give, it could be given in no other place because Jerusalem is a heart of Judaism. The spirit was, if the Spirit was going to be poured out, it was going to happen in Jerusalem. It came, and there is only one essential giving of the Spirit. If you read the Bible with the Old Testament included in a salvation historical moment, Acts 2 is a one-time event. That pouring out of the Spirit into the world is a one-time event. He's now here. They spoke in tongues. They had fire come down on them. There was an earthquake. There was wind. None of those things have ever happened again. It's a one-time event. And I think what's happening in Acts 8, 10, and 19 is Acts 8 is the Samaritans. Acts 10 is God-fearing Gentiles. And Acts 19 is just Gentiles. What did the Jews think of Samaritans, Gentiles, and Gentiles? What did they think of them? They were scum. They wouldn't even believe they could get converted. In fact, they questioned if the gospel was for the Gentiles. And so here are the Jews who received the one and only giving of the Spirit, the, the, the one-time event of Acts 2. They speak in tongues, and so they know it's the Spirit. Now, these people in Acts 8, 10 and 19 also apparently get converted. The Jewish council is wary, they don't believe it. But then when they go, they hear them speaking in tongues, and then he says to them, can you see? What does he say to them now? Yeah, it's like, oh, they've had exactly the same things that we have had. So maybe salvation is for the Samaritans as well. 
And maybe salvation is for the Gentiles as well. And that's exactly that in Acts 10. I haven't got time to look at it. And so I think the reason there's tongues in those four areas is because it was, it was authenticating salvation to the Jerusalem council of the Samaritans and the Gentiles who they refused to believe could get converted. And that's why it's nowhere else. Because speaking in tongues is not the quintessential mark of ongoing experience of the Spirit. The things that are the quintessential marks of an ongoing Spirit, and I'm going to close with this for sure. Would you go back to my very first slide, please? Those eight points. Here are the, the marks of ongoing fillings of the Spirit. It's right at the beginning of my sermon. Can you go back right to the top of the sermon, Ricky? Thank you, I just want to requote these eight points. Number one, the marks of the Spirit, the quintessential marks, and all these marks won't necessarily be in every one individual. We may have them in various bits. The first one is being empowered to be in love with Jesus. That's your definitive mark that you fill with the Spirit over and over again. The next one is that you engage the Word with passion. You love the Bible. That's a definitive mark of being filled in the Spirit. The next one is you now have power to preach Jesus. That's a definitive mark of being filled in the Spirit. You now discover gifts and you use them. That's a definitive mark of being filled with the Spirit. You become holy or you love holiness. You say no to lust and pornography and beating up people and robbing banks. That's a mark, a definitive mark of being filled with the Spirit. You are committed to coming to church. You're here every week without the pastor bugging you. That's a definitive mark of being filled with the Spirit. And you sing Bible-centered songs to Jesus. The definitive mark of being filled with the Spirit. And the final one, your assemblies and your life and your congregations are structured and organized and where gifts are used by perfecting them and spending time training them. They are all marks of being filled with the Spirit. And we're going to look at them individually in weeks to come. If you'll have me back next time, I've taken so much of your time up. I'm sorry. God bless you. Let me pray. Father, a lot has been said. A lot has been said. We pray that your Spirit would fill us afresh even now and open our eyes to behold wondrous things from your word. For your glory. Amen.